This correspondent first heard the remarkable tale of Nikolai Vavilov when, as an undergraduate at UC Davis, I took a class titled The Evolution of Crop Plants. I did think that some study of how mankind developed the foods that sustain civilization was worthwhile, and embedded in that study, inevitably, was the pioneering work of N. Vavilov. While his research was revolutionary, the story of Vavilov's life is equally important to us today, for it entails a cautionary tale of what happens when political ideology gets involved with science. As it happened, Vavilov's respected work in genetics was challenged in the Soviet Union by Trofim Lysenko, who won the favor of Joseph Stalin and saw to it that the better scientist fell from grace. Our guest today has written the best summation I've read of this dark chapter in science. The book is The Murder of Nikolai Vavilov. It is subtitled the story of Stalin's persecution of one of the great scientists of the 20th century. Joining us to talk about this clash of science and politics is author Peter Pringle. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Peter. Great to be with you, Doug. Now, Peter, we read in, in note from today's headlines, scientists are attempting to put some different strains of seeds up into cold storage near the Arctic Circle. And can you explain how, uh, how this news from today's headlines... The effort to retain valuable genetic material for future generations is really a direct extension of the research started by Vavilov in the Soviet Union back around World War I. Yes. Uh, well, we have to go back uh, to um, the 1920s, I guess. And Vavilov is a botanist, and he's, he has a dream. Um, he believes that if he uh, goes to the centers of origin, as he called them, of, the, of crop plants, of wheat in the Middle East and corn in Mexico and potatoes in Peru, um, and he looks for wild varieties uh, that the uh, first farmers missed when they were started to cultivate these crops, then he'd be able to bring back these genetic varieties, which he would breed into the current plants that we have, and uh, they and to make them better, uh, to make them survive frost, to make them to survive drought and and uh, and floods. And uh, so he built the first, the world's first uh, enormous, gigantic seed bank in Leningrad in 1920s. Um, and that basically is the forerunner of what you have uh, in, uh, in Norway now, uh, known as the doomsday vault of, uh, of, uh, of uh, crop seeds. I think uh, in these days it's almost second nature to contemplate that we need these wild resources, but when Vavilov Va thought of this back then, this was quite revolutionary. It, 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 was, it was totally revolutionary. In fact, um, most people, most plant breeders felt that they had enough uh, uh, genetic information, they had enough um, varieties, and they would just breed these and keep them going. And in fact, uh, you know, in those days, certainly, um, America was taking off as the as the great um, uh, breadbasket of the world. Uh, Russia was not very far behind until the revolution. Um, and uh, other countries, Australia, were beginning. Um, and uh, they were producing um, huge amounts of food. So they weren't lacking food. They weren't thinking in terms of biodiversity, that sort of frightening term to some. But it's actually... Um, Vavilov is probably and should be um, uh, called the father of biodiversity. He was the one who went out, searched all over the, all over the globe in, in five continents, um, and brought back these seeds. 
you know, you should tell us a bit about his expeditions around the world. You, you sort of paint a vivid picture in your book of this, this really almost Indiana Jones-like figure who's hiring guides, crossing glaciers, going in some out-of-the-way places to collect these wild uh, plant genes for his uh, collection. That's right. That's right. Well, he, he, started, off, um, he started off going to um, uh, the Fertile Crescent, uh, the Tigris and Euphrates, uh, now Iraq and Syria, and there he looked for... Um, different kinds of wheat and then he went to Afghanistan um, and he went to the Hindu Kush um, all these places now which are far too dangerous for anybody to go to but he went there on it was pretty dangerous in those days actually he went he's always dressed in a suit uh, and a collar and tie he always wore his fedora um, he went on foot he went uh, by camel if he were if he was in that type of country he otherwise he went by horse and then many pictures of him extraordinary with his with his suit on you know a horse going up um a mountain path just to just to collect a variety of wheat uh he went to uh, uh all over mexico all over central america and south america and don't forget these were days when a a person on official business from the soviet union <laughs> the new soviet soviet <laughs> union was not exactly welcomed you know <laughs> He might have been a spy. <laughs> yes. You, you, you paint a very vivid, a very amusing uh, uh, picture of when he was in Ethiopia. He became pals with Ross Tafari, the future Emperor Haile Selassie, and managed That's to cut right. through some red tape. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. And, um, and so he, he had no compunction at all about going straight to the top. If he couldn't get a visa or if he couldn't get a passage through, he, he went right, to, right up to the president's desk, basically, of the country that he was in. Uh, through various connections, he's very charming and um, uh, lovely man, and um, and and uh, eventually got himself um, a laissez passer uh, through these these um, countries, which were always in the throes of some kind of civil unrest and loaded with bandits. So uh, he was lucky to get away with his life. Another thing that really surprised me in reading your book, I did not know this, Vavilov actually came to nearby Santa Rosa to pay, a, to pay a visit with the legendary amateur plant breeder Luther Burbank. That was one of his great things, although Burbank was by no means um, a scientist. He was a, a green thumb person, if you like, and, and very, very good at it. Um, but uh, Vavilov never passed people like that by that he always thought, well, they might know something. Uh, they might have heard of some plant that I haven't heard of. They might have, might actually have one that I don't have in my seed bank in Leningrad. So he always knocked on everybody's doors, and there is a marvelous passage of him meeting uh, the legendary Luther Burbank. You're right. And, and we should probably take, it's probably worth our while to take a very slight uh, digression here into the fact that uh, when Vavilov was doing his work, uh, they just sort of rediscovered Mendel's laws of inheritance. And, and there were a lot of people at that time in the 20s that were not able to... Uh, to see how Darwin and Mendel, uh, uh, well, they, they saw them as contradictory, and it led to kind of a split of scientists into factions, which kind of comes into play later. Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, this was the beginning of genetics, if you like, uh, begin the turn of the century. Uh, Mendel's laws had been rediscovered. Um, those progressive, if that's the right word, and I think it is, um, uh, plant breeders were saying, well, let's uh, breed our plants according to according to Mendel's laws, um, and uh, that will make it uh, more sure for us exactly what we're going to get, uh, whereas in the past um, people had been just sort of doing it on an ad hoc basis and hoping for the best. Um, but uh, Vavilov um, and in, in Russia there were 
um, uh, a few, not many, um, geneticists in the, the School of Agriculture and Agronomy, and, uh, and Vavilov um, came out of that school and uh, pursued his, his plant breeding according to Mendel's laws. Now, there were others who said, who didn't believe in Mendel's laws. Uh, they thought they were particularly Stalin, for example, thought this was a, a kind of a bourgeois plot um, <laughs> that uh, only helped those who wanted to produce master races, uh, like Hitler, for example. And um, so uh, those people uh, followed not Mendel, but Lamarck, who was a, uh, a French botanist um, who believed in the inheritance of acquired characteristics, which meant that if you could train, in a way, your plant um, to have um, a certain characteristic during its lifetime, then, then, then that would be inherited either by watering it better or putting it in the sun or doing something which, which, uh, which gave it these properties, that those properties would be inherited. Of course, it was nonsense. Uh, so a battle uh, was looming between the Mendelists on the one hand and the Lamarckists on another. And, and of course, uh, this the story of Avilov really has as two villains. Stalin is one, but we need to introduce the other one, the man who, the other scientist who sort of appealed more to Stalin's sense of what was proper political ideology and thus gain influence. Tell us, tell us a little bit about Trofim Lysenko. Well, uh, Lysenko was um, he was not an educated person. Basically, he uh, came from the Ukraine and. Um, he went to horticultural school, but he didn't get the scientific training um, that uh, that Vavilov had, uh, and he couldn't uh, speak any foreign languages, uh, so he couldn't follow the science of genetics as it was developing in the West. And um, he came up with these, um, as it turned out, fraudulent and speculative claims um, that he could change crops by training them under new conditions of light and heat and, and uh, wetness. Um, and Stalin believed him. Uh, and that, uh, uh, as a result of that, Stalin began to arrest the geneticists um, and throw them into jail. Yeah, we should, I think, maybe, uh, I remember studying this and, and the, the legendary tales of Lysenko. He would set up like an agricultural plant or a, a, an agricultural station somewhere, basically put sugar in the ground next to the corn with the idea that the corn would then be sweeter and pass that on to subsequent generations, which unfortunately does not happen in the real world. Yes, that's right. There were, there were many things like that, exactly. Uh, so in some, in some ways, people saw him as a, as a charlatan and a mystic and um, uh, the rest of it. I mean, actually, he did have some perfectly good ideas. And Vavilov, being a very generous-minded uh, intellectual person, um, again, wanted to look at those ideas to see if there was any, any worth in them. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, the way you subject a, a plant to light or heat or, or, or high or low temperatures um, does, in fact, um, affect, its, affect its, uh, it, the, the outcome of what the plant will do for you, how many, uh, what, 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 it, what it will produce in the end, you know, with the grain and the food. Well, the two men are quite a, uh, quite a contrast. Uh, Lysenko, the, the dubious scientist, Vavilov, a man with good relations with the international scientific community. And it seems as though uh, under his leadership, Soviet genetics was doing, was doing pretty well for quite a while. Um, yes, indeed. Um, I mean, it was, uh, you know, he was, he was given the free reign, basically, uh, initially by Lenin. Um, uh, and um, Lenin 
uh, was, um, as all Soviet leaders always had to be, all Russian leaders had to be, um, terribly mindful of, of the uh, appalling famines that they sometimes had. And there was a devastating one in 1921, um, that's about four years into the revolution. Uh, it made a great impression on Lenin and as he traveled about and saw the emaciated victims. And when he was asked uh, what he was going to do about it, he famously replied, the famine to prevent is the next one. And that's the time at which um, he sent uh, Vavilov off to America uh, to see what they were doing and um, to bring back plants. That was his first expedition. And of course, the, the picture you paint of Vavilov is, is not a particularly political person, but he, he did feel that the Soviet system, the new system that was you know, in place maybe about a decade by that point, was probably a good place to do science, and he was trying to get some other scientists to maybe come home. That's correct. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it wasn't only Vavilov, it was others who looked at the Soviet Union at the point, and they saw this centrally organized science thing, um, where the the, the the, the, the state was providing money. This, was not, this didn't happen in the West. It was all private money um, and all locked into um, uh, commercial concerns, basically. So there was a kind of uh, utopia that looked as though it might actually happen at some point in the, in, in the early 20s to many of the scientists. Um, and Vavilov was one of them. Uh, some of the others um, left the Soviet Union uh, to study abroad, uh, particularly in the genetics labs in America, and they thought differently. They started looking uh, at what Stalin was doing. Uh, they looked at the arrests. They looked at then the disappearances. They looked at uh, even the executions, and they said, no, thank you very much. I'm not going to do that. I'm not coming back. But Vavilov very stubbornly uh, uh, stood it out right to the end, um, of course, to his... Um, things that happened to him. Well, uh, there's a local local angle uh, to, to this story you're telling. Uh, when, when I was a student at UCD, uh, coming on board the genetics department, uh, ending his uh, distinguished career, was Theodosius Dobzhansky. And you, I didn't realize until I read your book that Dobzhansky was, uh, was lobbied pretty hard by Vavilov to come home and work for the betterment of his homeland, and, and luckily for him, he declined. That's correct, and uh, I think he tried it very, very hard. Uh, <coughs> Vavilov tried very hard to get him back, um, <coughs> and um, he just uh, simply, in the end, said, uh, "No, thank you. I, I'm, I'm in America now, and that's it. And I'm not, I'm not going to do that." I mean, there are stories of Dobzhansky coming. Um, I think there was one about him. He went to Finland once, and he looked across to Russia, and it must have been a, such a terrible wrench to actually say, "I'm not going to go back." You know, you're leaving your entire family behind, and you don't know what their fate is either. Well, uh, this kind of picks up to about the 1930s. There's some, some significant crop failures in the USSR. Economic mis mismanagement plays a hand in some of that in Stalinist Russia. But at this point, Stalin's looking around for some scapegoats. That's right. Uh, the collectivization of the, of the farmland, of course, and the um, <clears throat> destruction of the Kulak class, who were the competent farmers, if, if you like, um, the ones who were doing the best. Um, and uh, Stalin got rid of them, and uh, so the, the initial collectivization was a terrible failure, and there was a frightful famine um, as a result of it. Uh, and 1932 or three is the year we're looking at, um, and Stalin, uh, as you say, wanted a scapegoat, so he ordered his uh, plant breeders, um, at that point headed by uh, Vavilov, um, to produce new types of 
new varieties uh, that would yield more within three years. And of course, Ravilov knew perfectly well, as did any plant breeder, certainly those who were following Mendel, uh, that, that this was just simply completely impossible. Um, it took 10 to 12 years to perfect a new variety, uh, test it through the seasons. Um, and so Ravilov then understood, I think, uh, that uh, the game was up, so to speak. Um, Senko, on the other hand, um, uh, a, uh, an opportunist, if, uh, if, you, if you want one, they jumped in and said, oh, I can do it. I can talk to these plants and I can um, <coughs> give them some, some better light and, uh, and, uh, and uh, make them produce these, uh, produce these new varieties in three years. Well, of course, it was complete nonsense when he said it, and in three years he hadn't done it. Um, but the die was cast, basically. Um, Stalin believed Lysenko, wanted to believe Lysenko, didn't particularly like um, uh, Vavilov because he came from the wrong class. He was a bourgeois person from pr before the revolution. Uh, and so uh, this, was an, 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 this was really the beginning of the end. And, and it took three or four years, Vavilov still trying to be nice to Lysenko, still trying to accommodate him. Um, many people have said, you know, appease him um, and uh, bring him into the fold, uh, but it didn't work. And, and sadly, uh, as your book well documents, Vavilov is arrested and he never leaves custody. That's right. He's um, interrogated. Uh, we know this because uh, uh, his son, uh, Yuri Vavilov, is still alive in Moscow. And if you're the direct descendant of a person who has been um, uh, murdered, is the word, by Stalin, uh, then uh, you can have access to your KGB and KVD file. Um, and from the file, we were able to reconstruct exactly how he was arrested and what happened to him thereafter. He was interrogated for an entire year, um, often three or four times a day. And at the end of all this, he was convicted of sabotaging uh, the Soviet Union's agricultural uh, project and also of spying for Britain. Of course, none of these things were true. And, and, and really, the, the worst part of the story, Peter, in, in many respects, is, is what happens once, once Vavilov is off the scene and Lysenko really, really then gains the upper hand and, and sort of dominates Soviet genetics after World War II. And tell, tell us a bit about how bad it got. Well, uh, basically, uh, you know, all school books um, were, uh, genetics was ripped, the pages on genetics were ripped out of school books. And, uh, and so for a generation, uh, genetics um, was not taught as an official science in the Soviet Union. Um, the harm that it did the country is, is, uh, is hard to actually say, but you can imagine it, because this is not only for agriculture, this is also for medicine and uh, all sciences. And this was at a time going all the way through to when Watson and Crick uh, discovered in the West the double helix, um, Stalin uh, was still around. Uh, he died in 1953 and um, uh, was... Uh, leading the charge to say, uh, we don't need uh, that science of genetics, it comes from the West. 
And what really amazes me, I learned from reading your book, is that, that, that he actually has a, a further renaissance when Khrushchev takes over. And he's sort of, instead of being shown the door, he's, he's sort of, he has a, regains more power. Yes, that's right. I mean, you're so ingrained by that time, Lysenko. And so, uh, you know, once you get to the top of, 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 a, of a Soviet bureaucracy, it's very hard, <laughs> as we know, watching Soviet leaders to remove them. Uh, so uh, he was, uh, yeah, he was still there. And he actually, I mean, he was, there were many people in the Soviet Union who still, still followed him, many scientists who still followed him until his death in 76. About the time I was studying these these uh, Vavilov and, and crop evolution, and he was still alive. And, and I know that it was said that even though you know he was discredited in the USSR, that there was still a pro uh, Lysenko faction, and that only in recent years had genetics papers actually appeared in genetics journals. They were having to put them in things, physics, other journals, just to get them past the, the censorship. That's absolutely right. You know, the rehabilitation of Vavilov actually happens. Uh, when Stalin dies, so uh, so mid fifties um, af uh, after after Khrushchev's famous speech and denouncing um, um, uh, Stalin's crimes, etc., uh, those who were um, considered worthy of rehabilitation um, were uh, were turned into heroes. And in fact, Vavilov in the Soviet Union became a national hero. Uh, we didn't hear about him over here, but uh, that's what he was there, and um, and they celebrated his his birthday um, time and again, um, and they, he was put his works were put back into into Soviet books. Uh, so now he is extremely well known over there, but not here yet. Well, Peter, I know that you were you you learned this story when you were in Russia and you traveled around a bit investigating it. Uh, do, do you know how how Vavilov's seed collection uh, has fared over the years? And I presume it's still it must be instrumental in in these institutes that he founded. Yes, um, it's still there uh, in the same old Tsarist palace that he took over in 1920. Um, that's right in the middle of. Uh, Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, of course. It's, uh, uh, <clears throat> it's right in the middle of one of the most famous squares there, St. Isaac's Square, next door to the cathedral where the Tsars were all enthroned. Um, and um, uh, it has gone through some rough times uh, during the fall of communism. It, um, it uh, didn't have very much funds, uh, still doesn't, um, but it's still there. And uh, the experimental... Um, farm that he set up uh, outside Leningrad is, is still there. Um, and uh, he has actually, or that, the, the collection has provided some seeds um, to the seed bank, uh, the Doomsday Seed Bank that has just opened uh, in Norway. Oh, wow. Some varieties, I mean, I'm not saying that they, they, they are varieties which were necessary, necessarily collected um, personally by Vavilov, but they come from they have, they have uh, several collections from the Vilos Seed Bank from those days. You certainly did a lot of, uh, a lot of research for this book, and one little interesting uh, sidelight that, that was quite touching in a way. I think you described how, despite the siege of Leningrad, where people were just starving in, in, as the Nazis had surrounded the city, that obviously seeds are edible, and yet the scientists there jealously guarded those, uh, those, the genetics of those, those seed crops and did not consume them. That's absolutely correct, and, and his staff was fiercely loyal. Uh, they literally loved him. 
um, and uh, he, um, uh, after his disappearance, um, which was he was arrested in 1940, and he didn't actually die um, until until 43. Uh, he died of starvation, of all things, in, in jail for a man who wanted to feed the world. Um, but his staff uh, protected the seeds during the 900-day siege of Leningrad, and uh, several of them uh, actually just died at their desks um, rather than eat the seeds uh, that were surrounding them. And <clears throat> another interesting point is that the, uh, the Hitler... Um, had heard about the Leningrad Seed Bank, the Vilov Seed Bank, and he constructed a very special uh, unit, an SS commando unit, uh, to go in when, when they took Leningrad, which of course they never did, but had they taken Leningrad, this SS commando unit was sitting on the outside ready to go, go into the Vilov Seed Bank, take all the seeds and bring them back to Germany. And it's so ironic that Vavilov's sort of stock in Soviet eyes rose when they realized the Nazis were really intent upon getting that material. <laughs> Peter, any, any final thoughts here about some of the ideological battles fought maybe in the U.S. recently? Things like biotech have been, been uh, sort of political pitched battles. And of course, uh, I know you've written a whole book about some of that. But um, I think this whole Vavilov versus Stalin battle, um, you know, has lessons for the present. Yeah, I mean, obviously it, had le it has lessons about, you know, politics and interfering uh, an ideology interfering with science, um, particularly uh, global warming, etc., stuff like that. But the Vilov's um, legacy, if that's uh, the right word, um, is uh, important. Not because, he, you know, he didn't um, produce any new theory, new great scientific theory. He wasn't Mendel, he wasn't Darwin. Um, but what he did uh, was that his mission for all humanity, as he called it, um, to collect all these seeds, um, was actually important because it told us, it told all the plant breeders for the first time, this is how you do it. You don't just think in terms of your own little patch, uh, corn in Mexico or potatoes in Brazil. You think in terms of the world, and you go to the centers of origin, the places where those plants originated, and you start collecting, and then you take all the thing, all the seeds, all the plants that you've got back, and uh, so, some of the. The uh, things that he did, I mean, were, were quite extraordinary. And, and perhaps my favorite image of him, actually, is um, after he was finishing his Abyssinian trip then in Ethiopia, of course, he was at a post office um, in the Eritrean capital of Asmira, uh, where he had to fill in yards of customs forms for all his packages. And he wrote back to his colleagues uh, in Leningrad for four days and nights, I write non-stop, my fingers got numb, and signing 830 forms, seven forms per parcel for the customs officer. I mean, it is an extraordinary <laughs> event. Uh, there was no FedEx, UPS in those days, you know. <laughs> right. you, had to, you had to parcel them up, take them to the post office, and pack them off. And of course, it's amazing that they ever got to Leningrad, but they did. The book is The Murder of Nikolai Vavilov, the story of Stalin's persecution of one of the great scientists of the 20th century. We've been speaking with author uh, Peter Pringle, and, and I hope, uh, Peter, that, uh, you know, given that this, the fact that this issue of wild strains in, say, an area like Mexico versus introducing a GMO, this is something that's still, it's very much in, in right in what we're talking about. This is exactly what we're talking about, I mean, and, uh, you know, we're talking about, um, I don't know, let's, let's bring in NAFTA for, 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 right. for, 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 for a minute, you know, here's the North American tree. 
uh, free trade agreement, which allows um, you know uh, uh, the, the flow of genetically modified corn down into Mexico and down into the center of origin that was identified and made so much of by Vavilov. Now, do we, do we want that? Is that a good idea? Um, are we destroying the heritage of corn? Are we are we uh, interfering with that so that we won't be able to get there? get the, uh, the, the old land races, as they call them. And how, how do we get over that? Well, we produce seed banks, of course. Are the seed banks being run properly? Is there, is there enough money for them? Uh, all those questions uh, come out of a study of Avilov's life. Well, Peter Pringle, the story of Avilov takes us to the 20th century, but we're in the 21st. These issues are still around. Hopefully you can come back and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll hit it again sometime. I'd love to. Thanks very much. It's been a great pleasure. Bye-bye. All righty. 